Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th Wartime Diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating Wartime Diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. The people who came in to Israel on October 7th, what they saw in front of them was an enemy that is not individuals, that are not humans. You know, it's, it's, a, it's horrific. And then our response as a society is saying, we're not going to see them as human. Like, we've tried this so many times. And it's failed every single time. And we know it's going to fail this time. And nobody has a plan. And yet, that's where we're at. Hey, listeners. It's Mishi. One of the people who influenced me most in life was my grandmother, my safta, Zina. She lived across the street from us and reached the ripe old age of 99, so in a very real way she was always there, and shaped the person I am today. My grandparents met in the early 30s, in England, at a formal intercollegiate debate. On one side of that debate was my grandfather, Abe, who was the head of the Zionist Student Union at Oxford. And on the other was my grandmother, who was the head of the non-Zionist student union at the London School of Economics. She was a non-Zionist not because she had any particular beef with the idea of a Jewish homeland, but because, 
Like many progressives in England at the time, she was an internationalist and didn't really believe in the concept of nation-states. I'm not sure who technically won that particular exchange of ideas. But suffice to say that several years later, my Safta followed my Saba to Jerusalem and spent her entire life representing and working in the service of the Jewish state. Many, many years after that debate, in the summer of 2006, my Safta and I were watching TV together in her home in Jerusalem. It was the middle of the Second Lebanon War, and the news was simply awful. Casualties, destruction, hopelessness. And then my Safta looked at me and said something I haven't forgotten ever since. Look what a strange world we live in, she said. There are beautiful hills north of here that have vegetation and trees and wildlife. And we humans have drawn a line in the middle of those hills. And we call one side of the line Israel and the other Lebanon. And now people from one side are launching rockets at people on the other, who in response are bombing and shooting and advancing. And what's the guy on TV saying, really? He's telling us that when Moti Cohen from one side of the line is hurt, when his life is turned upside down, we have to be very sad and mourn, because he's one of our own. And it's not that when the same thing happens to Ahmed Suleiman from the other side we need to rejoice, but we can care a bit less. My grandma then sighed and, with the authority and experience of a woman in her mid-90s, said, But I'm equally saddened for both Moti and Ahmed. Because, well, a person is a person is a person, no matter what. That lesson became the basis of Israel's story, a project that my friends and I created in order to share human interest stories of our countrymen and women. For 13 years we've been exploring the humanity of different people and trying to create empathy towards those who have different beliefs or worldviews or circumstances. Israel's at war now, a brutal war we didn't want and didn't initiate. And here at Israel Story we immediately stopped everything we were doing and began releasing wartime diaries, which is something completely new for us. Not exactly stories, but rather quick conversations, or postcards really, that try to capture slivers of life right now. Thus far we've released 20 diaries that shine a light on the pain and resilience that is everywhere. We've profiled families of hostages and the fallen. We've heard from survivors of the October 7th carnage and from civil society leaders who have initiated incredibly inspiring projects. We've asked what it's like to be a mom at home with four kids and no kindergarten, or what it's like to volunteer for reserve duty at the age of 50. We've spoken to farmers and chefs and rock stars, to rabbis and educators and programmers, to a Holocaust survivor and to real-world heroes. But one thing that's common to almost all those we've heard from is that they represent mainstream Jewish-Israeli perspectives. And that's not a coincidence. Our name is Israel's story, and our team is made up primarily of Israeli Jews. I am an Israeli Jew. I was born here, and grew up here, and have lived here my whole life. 
I served in the army and have, together with the rest of the team, devoted my professional life to telling Israel's story, at least in the way that we understand it. So we're not neutral observers. We're a side to this war. But I also keep in mind my grandmother's lesson, which is the motto of our show, that a person is a person is a person, no matter what. And that pain is pain is pain, no matter if it's inflicted in Be'eri or in Chanunis. Empathy is the core of what we do here at Israel Story. And even now, maybe especially now, empathy is crucial because everyone is suffering. I know a lot of people don't have the desire or the capacity at this terrible moment of anguish to make space for anyone else's pain. And that makes sense to me. It's understandable. Now is definitely not the time for any kind of judgment. But after thinking about it very carefully, after many heated conversations and debates, our team has decided that in order to remain true to our mission, it's also important to share stories from the other side, to complicate matters, and humanize, and insert some nuance into what can often feel like a black and white, us versus them, reality. This is not a statement about equivalency or about hierarchy of pain. We're not here to make political statements or point fingers. We're just doing what we believe is right, telling the stories we're hearing among and around us. Today we'll hear from Sahar Vaudi, a Jewish-Israeli peace activist who lost a dear friend, Khalil Abu Yahya, in Gaza. Adina Karpuch edited this episode. Um, my name is Sahar Vardi. I'm a Jewish-Israeli activist from Jerusalem. I'm 33. I spend quite a lot of time in Palestinian villages, uh, mostly doing what we call protective presence work. So trying to be with Palestinians in areas where there's a lot of settler violence or military violence. Can you describe your experience um, of October 7th? Where were you, what, what your emotions were? I was sleeping when everything started in Jerusalem and my flatmate woke me up in the first alarm and told me there's an alarm and I looked at her like, what are you talking about? Um, and we went down to the uh, shelter in, in the building. Um, there was quite a few alarms in Jerusalem that morning. So the whole morning was kind of going up and down, uh, trying to figure out when, when do you take a shower between the, uh, between the alarms. I was obviously in my pajamas for the first couple of times that I went down. And uh, I think this is true for most activists. Uh, our, our pajamas are activist t-shirts. <laughs> so those are, those are the ones you don't walk around with every day, but they always have a slogan on them. And going into a shelter where, you know, a lot of the neighbors obviously are people who are like with their phones waiting to be called up um, for the military, uh, knowing they'll probably be called up the same day. And, and like everyone, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a bizarre, bizarre reality. After, you know, I check that everyone I know is at least safe um, here. I checked in with Palestinian friends and they were still safe, you know, for a day or two. I was starting to understand what that's going to mean for them. And it was very clear that like the 1400 of those first day and that tragedy is just the beginning of the tragedy that's going to happen here. And what does that mean for, for the friends that I have in Gaza as well? 
How do you have friends from Gaza? So different people in different ways, but I, I worked for an American Quaker organization for about 10 years that has an office in Gaza. Um, and so a lot of these people have been my colleagues for, you know, some for a decade. Can you tell me about your friend Khalil? So Khalil, I, I really met through the protests of uh, the March of Return. And a lot of the people kind of leading those protests and, and involved in them came from the kind of very strong, nonviolent ethos in within Gaza. So Khalil was 27, a literature student, comparative literature, and uh, had two daughters, was married. Um, he was here hospitalized, uh, he had cancer, so he was hospitalized in Jerusalem. And he was O minus, so am I. So I was donating my blood to him while he was unconscious. That was the closest we physically got. Um, and more recently, was trying to study abroad. So we were talking a lot about it. I just came back from the UK from studying there. So we were talking a lot about kind of scholarships and trying to help him figure out where he can apply. He was applying for his PhD and, you know, just that kind of stuff very daily. You know, those people that you speak to and you come out, it doesn't matter what you talked about, you just come out with a smile from the conversation because there's something about them that's a bit contagious. <laughs> he was one of those people. Our last interaction before the war was September 27th, um, and it's kind of, it's a bit boring, uh, but, you know, he was sending me a CV because we were talking about the scholarships, uh, and I was sending him, like, if, what the grading system is, uh, in if it's by the Egyptian one, because I think that's what there is in Gaza, and kind of sending him a tool of how to convert it, and I was like, great. 2.1 as a minimum is great. That's the British system. Um, and gives me a good enough indication to send you some thoughts. Um, and then he continues, say it says, uh, by the way, we can search for cheap universities in the UK or US if we don't find scholarships. Or I can study a PhD from here online um, so that it's cheaper. I'm just telling you this in case this is helpful for whatever you're sending me. And if it's not helpful, just ignore this message. You know, just a casual conversation and then the war began and when was your next interaction on october 11th i wrote to him how are you holding up in this madness and it's it's kind of texts that you send that are asking are you still alive like you don't you don't ask that um but that's what you do and his first response is the israeli army called us to evacuate and go to el ramal neighborhood we evacuated to another place not the one that the israeli army told us to go after two hours, the Israeli army wiped the Lermel neighborhood, and tens of people and families were brutally killed. Update, our house, where I and my family live, has been totally destroyed by American-made F-16s. Uh, it is a place of memories with my late father. I'm extremely sad and feel pain deep inside my heart. Tears don't stop dropping off my eyes. I can feel my heart burning. I can feel my soul being suffocated by this. I want to scream to wake the world up. Now, if I survive, I'll be homeless. But I'm sure that the hearts of my beloved friends will always be a shelter that can never be destroyed. It is important for me to say that this will never affect my enthusiasm for a better world for all people without discrimination. I don't want this to happen to anyone. Um, and we keep texting a bit and I tell him kind of like, I, I wish I had more to say or do. And just tells me, it's enough of me that you asked about me. And just, you know, this won't affect my enthusiasm for a PhD. So we can continue on developing that. 
um, or to meet you in person if I survive. We, yeah, I just told him, let's get through this and make it happen. He said, inshallah, we will. And then, yeah, there's the day where he tells me, oh, I'm here now. If you want, we can talk. I'm available. And then I try him and he doesn't answer. And then he tries me and doesn't answer. I say, I'm sorry, I was offline. I'm glad you're okay. He says, it's fine. We can talk later. Um, writes, I miss you, my dear friend. And the last one is after a few of his cousins were killed on October 23rd. What did he say? I feel terribly melancholic for this, but also more determined to fight for freedom, justice, and equality for all, for all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, color, or religion. And the end, like a message after that, he writes, my family members who lost their lives in the Israeli bombing will always be the source of power to go on in this long way to struggle, and we won't give up. Um, and then, yeah, the last text that I have from him, um, I tell him, so like, sorry to hear about your family members and more and more people and names and stories just adding to a list of pain that continues to grow. So he writes me, hence our role as human rights activists and freedom fighters. <laughs> and that was October 27th and by October 30th, uh, he was dead. Um... And just like looking at my phone now, there, there are texts after that. Um, I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. <laughs> I, I don't completely know why, but I guess there's a side that didn't kind of want to believe it. You know how I say that, you know, you text friends in Gaza, it's kind of texting them just to see if they respond, just to see if they are alive. And I, I texted him again after I was told. <laughs> So kind of like just just in case he answers. What did you text? It was, are you here? This feels so strange to send and ask. Um, but that was never received. It's still unread. Do you know what happened to him? How he was killed? He was uh, in a house of relatives with his family. Um, two daughters two of his siblings, his mother, uh, him and his wife were all killed in the bombing and a few other cousins. I'm sure listeners will want to know, so I just want to give you the opportunity to to clarify that Khalid was not uh, a member of the Hamas or involved or supportive of the Hamas. Khalid was not. And it feels almost ridiculous to have to say it. Like, this is a person who's like literally talked about nonviolence and the importance of nonviolence his entire life, including criticism within Gaza about it, you know? That doesn't keep him, save him. And forget even about Khalil. Like, about his two daughters. Like, how many of us ask this question of like, um, I think that maybe people are saying like, so who who in his family was, was a terrorist, right? Because like in our minds, it's the houses of terrorists that are being bombed. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm not a military person. I don't know what the, but it's like entire apartment buildings, you know, entire neighborhoods. So I don't know, maybe one of his neighbors was a target. Maybe like, I don't know who the target was there. All I know is that him and everyone he loved is dead. We know 
that the majority of people killed, including the Israeli military, will tell you that the majority of people being killed are not Hamas operatives. It's just easier for us in our minds to say, no, no, they're all Hamas affiliated. I just want to push you on that because, look, a lot of civilians in Gaza are being killed, and that's a horrible, horrible thing. But it is also because the Hamas are cynical and are using them as human shields and are putting their commanders and their command centers underneath hospitals. So, I mean, what what is Israel supposed to do? Like the civilians of Gaza should be rising up against the Hamas. I think people in Gaza who have been living in this fear for a very long time, and fear not only from Israel, fear from Hamas, very clearly. The, the ideas of what you can do, of how much agency you have in this, are extremely limited. And I think most of us would probably act the same. Like most of us wouldn't know what to do. What, how, do you, how do you overthrow a government? How do you overthrow a government in the middle of a war? When bombs are literally falling around you, everyone I've spoken to in Gaza over the last few weeks, the only thing that they are thinking about is where do I move my family right now that's the safest? Nothing else matters. Nothing else exists. So thinking that now someone will say, you brought this on the on us, I'm gonna try to overthrow you, like, who's capable of that? And there's a demand from us always, if, if you want peace, give me a solution. And we don't even have that same demand from the military right now, but like military personnel will tell you, we don't have a solution. Clearly, we're going to bomb the hell out of Gaza. We're going to go in, try to, I don't know, crush Hamas. And every expert on security will tell you, what does that mean? They themselves say, we don't know what that means. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what the day after looks like. Even if we manage to completely annihilate Hamas, which no military personnel thinks is possible, even if we manage to do that, we know that what's going to happen after that is a vacuum that no one will fill. It's like what we are currently offering is not only killing thousands of civilians. It also literally has no horizon. The only situations in the history of this country where the security of Israelis has actually increased have been peace accords. We know that is what the solution is. We know it's the only solution. We know that every military solution that was ever tried is going to fail. And, and I get people want to know right now, right now what I want to do. So my thing is right now don't kill people. Just don't kill them. As simple as that. And then let's talk about what, yes. تملي معاك ولو حتى بعيد عني في قلبي هواك تملي معاك تملي في بالي وفي قلبي ولا بنساك تملي وحشني لو حتى بكون وياك تملي معاك 
معك قلبي معك روحي يا أغلى يا أغلى ومهما تكون بعيد عني لقلبي قريب يا عمر الجاي والحاضر يا أحلى نصيب تملي حبيبي بشتاكلك تملي علي من بدلك ولو حوالي كل الكون فكون يا حبيبي محتاجلك تملي حبيبي بشتاكلك تملي علي من بدلك ولو حوالي كل الكون بكون يا حبيبي محتاج لك دملي معاك معاك قلبي معاك روحي يا أغلى حبيب يا أغلى حبيب ومهما تكون بعيد عني لقلبي قريب يا عمر الجاي والحاضر يا أحلى نصيب تملي حبيبي بشتاكلك تملي علي من بدلك ولو حوالي كل الكون بكون يا حبيبي محتاج لك تملي حبيبي بشتاكلك تملي عيون تندهالك ولو حوالي كل الكون بكون يا حبيبي محتاج لك Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.